15. Tonight we begin our new Wednesday night series on questions and answers in the Bible. Now, some of you guys who've been here for a couple of weeks, you know that we're going to have a box in the back. We have note cards in the back. If you have a question about the Bible, it could be anything at all. You could leave it anonymous, or you could put your name on it. There's no such thing as a dumb question unless Andy's asking it. Uh, so you guys could go ahead, put it down. That's good. Go ahead and put your question down. And as I kind of clarified a couple weeks ago, it doesn't necessarily have to be a question maybe about the Bible or a character or a story or whatever that happened. Maybe there's something that's going on in current events that you're like, hey, does the Bible have anything to say about this? And if you're curious whatsoever, then by all means, put it down on the note card, drop it in the box, and we'll be looking at these things for the weeks to come. Now, tonight we're going to try to tackle three questions. Uh, it should get us done here within the next 50 minutes, but due to uh, uh, extended commercials from the comedy hour... Just kidding, just kidding. I usually am long-winded enough anyways. I don't need any help. Yeah, we got time. That's Famous last words. <laughs> so we're going to kick things off tonight with question one. During the crucifixion, there was darkness over all the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. What would these times be on today's standard clock? Out of curiosity, did the person who asked that, are they in this room right now? Can you read it again? Because I can hear it. Sure, I can read it again. Or it is right there on your study sheet as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> Question one. <laughs> she had a late night last night. I confirmed. It was very late. It was. During the crucifixion, there was darkness over all the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. What would these times be on today's standard clock? The follow-up question to that was, I don't think the person asked that is in here tonight, so hopefully they're listening on the podcast, which, by the way, we do have a podcast, so if you're not here when your question is asked, check out our podcast online. It's just FBCJ Solid Youth. Awesome. You should be able to find out all of these answers to your questions whenever you need it. It's also on Apple. It's on anywhere you can find podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google. I think it's on Google. Is anybody here listening to Google and Play? Can I find it on MySpace? MySpace, uh, Zanga. Google um, <laughs> yeah, they do. It's called Google Play. I didn't know Google has that. No, it's not on YouTube. You know, I was mowing this year. Someone told me to start recording me putting it on YouTube to spread the gospel. While you're mowing? Oh, oh, okay. I did think about maybe seeing if we can get a camera mount up here and maybe doing a video podcast, but we digress. Anywho, so question one on your outline. You guys are open to where? Mark 15. Mark 15. But the question stems from this verse that I have up here on the screen for you guys. Matthew 27, 45. This is now from the sixth hour. There was what? Darkness. Over all the land unto the ninth hour. You guys are in Mark 15. Can I get a reader for verse 25? AJ. Um, he's not even there. I'm there. Uh, and it was the third hour and they crucified him. All right, Garrett, read 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with, with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Yeah. Which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken so in two of the four Gospels, we have the same thing. From the sixth hour, there was darkness until when? The ninth hour. That was in Matthew. That was in Mark. And then up on the screen here, I have Luke 23, 44 to 45. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was what? Over all the earth until the what? And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Oh, I love that. That's an entire message in and of itself, of just salvation being open to all. There's no, it's not only limited to the priests, because back then in the temple, only the priests had access to the holy of holies. That veil is twain. Religion is dead because of Christ's work on the cross. I love it. So here we have three different Gospels that all say that this same phenomenon happened. That there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Now, again, in our kind of Western thinking, we might think, okay, sixth to the ninth hour, yeah, I mean, that kind of happens. But we have to think that we're not here in the eastern part of the United States or in the eastern time zone. 
So on your outline, to, to answer this very simply, back during then in this culture, and even really to this day still, the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. In light of this, the third hour, which was when Christ was crucified, as we saw in, in Mark 15, that would be what? 9, 9 a.m. Good, good. Simple math. I love it. Which means that the darkness came right at noon, lasting until when? 3. 3 p.m. Great job. Great job. That was. Good job, You're on the math club, aren't you? So, so we could just stop there. Hey, we answer the question. That's, what it, that's when the Jewish uh, time clock begins, and so that's the time of the day. But I don't want to pass this over as though it's nothing. Because just think about it. From noon to 3 p.m., darkness is completely on the face of the earth. From the time that Christ is on the cross, or about halfway through the time that Christ is on the cross, until the moment he takes his last breath, the moment when God the Father looked down and had forsaken him, because the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are so holy that he cannot even behold sin. And so when Jesus Christ, he which knew no sin, became sin, took on the sins of the entire planet, when he became sin, in exchange giving us his righteousness, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, when that moment that he became sin, God the Father looked down on him and he couldn't look at him anymore because he had to turn his back away because the eyes of the Lord are holier and purer than to behold sin. He had to turn his back on his only son because of what Christ had become. And that was the reason why there was darkness on the planet. But just think about it. Three different Gospels detail this happening. For three hours... And the second bullet point on your outline, here's why this is significant. It's worth noting that this event of darkness at noon was prophesied all the way back in Amos chapter 8. Go ahead and turn over there. This is going to be fun. Exactly. I should have. It's uh, after Genesis before Revelation. Bro. Is that the Old Testament? Bro. Yes. Okay, I'll give you guys a hint. It's after the book of Joel. Yeah, I'm there. Bro. I just flipped two pages. I'm so smart. Is it before Malachi? Yes. It's not an apocrypha either, Andy. Don't ask that question. Don't you guys love me? I could have had that as a cross-reference on the screen, but I chose to have you guys turn there. Uh, Gracie, if you're listening right now, please don't tell your dad the atrocity that's happening right now. That's Gracie Weaver. All right. Everybody in Amos, Amos chapter 8. Is everybody there? Hmm? What? Something we were talking about. I thought, no, I thought you said something different. Amos chapter 8, is everybody there? <laughs> All right, follow along with me in verse 9. And it shall come to pass in what? That day. So for those of you who just came off our study on Sunday mornings and how to study the Bible, that should perk your ears up. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon. Noon, midday, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Look at verse 10. And I will turn your feasts into mourning. File that away. And all your songs into lamentation or mourning. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the mourning of an only what? Mourning, as in the grieving, as in immense sorrow over the loss of an only begotten son. And the end thereof as a bitter day. Hmm. You know what I find interesting about this whole thing about feasts? Do you know what was going on at the death of Christ? The feast of what? You got it, Ethan. The Passover. The feast of the Passover. And their feast was turned into mourning. 
the morning as of an only sun. Now on your outline, again, second bullet points, worth noting that this event of darkness at noon was prophesied, as we just read, some 700 years before Christ was even born. And even more so, because I had mentioned that whenever you see the words, that day, those days, for those of you students of how to study the Bible, what does that day always directly or indirectly reference? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord which broadly speaking starts at the day of the rapture, but specifically is talking about the second coming of Christ and it's every event in between there. And like most prophecies, they're twofold, meaning it usually happens more than once. Yeah, this definitely happened at the first coming of Christ, but this is also going to happen again midday during the tribulation period. How do I know that? Well, again, some of you guys, this will be very familiar to you. Go ahead and write down 2 Peter 3.8 on your outline right there next to that point. This is a key verse when it comes to Bible prophecy, when it comes to studying the Bible. Peter says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Very key, important words. Wouldn't you say, Jaden? Wouldn't you say, Hannah? As and like, very important words. <laughs> one day is with as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. We've talked about this extensively throughout the course of Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, things of that sort, where this is a great verse to understand Bible prophecy. That just as Christ created the earth in seven literal days... Well, but from his perspective, he's not really bound by time. Seven literal days in our time frame is like a thousand years for him. And wouldn't you know it that when you actually trace from the beginning of Adam and Eve up until this very present moment in time, you find that there's been about 6,000 years of human history. And after the rapture of the church and after the tribulation period, there's going to be a thousand-year day of the Lord where he's ruling and reigning on Mount Zion over Israel, over the rest of the universe. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You know what I find kind of interesting about that, though? During the tribulation period, the last seven years, the last 70th week of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, as we talked about in Revelation a revelation study, rather. You know what happens around midday of the tribulation period? Around the three and a half year mark? Around noon, if you will? Revelation 8.12. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as, how many hours was it dark on the earth again? Three. Hmm. So as the third part of them was what? And the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. This moment is one of the vials that gets poured out, or so I think it's one of the trumpets, which files in the trumpets. Very, very similar. When this happens, it's right at that three and a half year mark. The final week of Daniel. The midway part. The noon, if you will. When this is going to happen again. And everything that's written in Amos chapter 8 also applies to this day. Very, very soon when God's wrath is poured out upon this entire planet and against all those who receive not the love of the truth, as 2 Thessalonians talks about. Understand that that is what awaits your friends, your family members, everyone who has not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Can you imagine the sun not shining for a third of the day, the moon, the stars, all the light that is given here is just not shining and it's just utter darkness? From this, we get the fact that the, when this happens during that time, the day is going to be shortened from 24 hours to 16. That's Everything's one-third is taken away from it. 16-hour long day with light completely gone. 
And you know what he says in the next verse, verse 13? There's still three more woes yet to go. In other words, if you think this event and the events that happened before this was something, you ain't seen nothing yet, is what he's saying. And the last point, an even more interesting phenomenon is the fact that Christ's death happened during the Jewish Passover, as we had previously talked about. This feast was only ever celebrated during a full moon. Which means the likelihood of a solar eclipse is impossible, as the moon during this time is diametrically opposite the sun. This truly was supernatural. I have up here a, a quote from a guy named Tertullian. He lived around 160 to 220 AD. I have the reference there. You can go check out what he says. Here's what he had stated about this whole thing. At the same time at noonday, there was a great darkness, and some have denied it, not knowing the cause of such darkness. And yet, you have that remarkable event recorded in your archives. Now, somebody tell me, who was the known empire that was ruling the world at this time? Rome. Roman Empire. And this guy was based out of and around the Rome area. And of course, he was dealing with all of the <laughs> pagan Romans who were trying to hunt down and kill as many Christians as possible. Did you know that back during this time, that whenever a Roman providence had a governor over it, they were required by law to write down any victories, any losses of a war, any economic things, or any odd occurrences that happened during the course of their providence while they were ruling. And here Tertullian is telling us that they have it recorded in their archives. He's just one of several other contemporaries during that time who said that even in your own record books, Rome, you guys record something weird happened for about three hours right in the middle of the stinking day. That cannot be explained with human logic. Completely and utterly supernatural. So 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., noon to 3 p.m., complete and utter darkness. That's the answer to that question. I was hoping that whoever asked that was here to see if there was any follow-ups. And again, if you guys, during the course of this, when we answer this, if you're not sure, if you're like, okay, that wasn't really where I was going with that, then hey, well, hopefully you got some additional out of it that you didn't previously know, but also follow up with me. All right. Next question. Question two, and don't worry, I'll read it. But again, if you can't read up there, then you can follow it on your study sheet. Question two. When talking with someone about homosexuality and I bring up Leviticus 18.22, they either say it's mistranslated or that it's in the Old Testament. In other words, it doesn't count. How can I persuade them that they are wrong? Now, when talking about this issue, I, I kind of want to present it in this sense. What is your end goal when it comes to talking with this person? Is it simply to just prove them wrong and to be right so you can win a debate and win an argument? Or is your end goal to lead them to Christ? Because as we just saw a couple slides ago, we see what awaits all those who have not received the love of the truth in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That awaits all of them. And so if we're just trying to win an argument, if we're just trying to win a debate, which I can tend to want to do, and that's something that God's Still working with me on, right, honey? Been working on. <laughs> if that's the end goal, do you think they're going to be drawn closer to Christ or pushed farther away? Yeah. And so with that, I want us to take a look at something that will kind of help set the stage. And I really think that whenever you talk with this person, or for those of you guys who you guys are go to school with kids that maybe even adhere to these things, or they're probably asked you the same questions before, how can you have a more civil, I guess you could say, conversation that will help win them closer to Christ? So the first bullet point before answering this question, it's good to present the biblical case of, what's, of what God's plan is for our lives, the world, and the universe. So turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Now again, this might seem remedial to you guys. Of course, you guys have grown up knowing this stuff. But in the context of this question, I want you to consider it in light of this. And I think that you'll see that the scope of this is a lot bigger than you and me. 
the scope of this is a lot bigger than just debating Oberfell versus Hodges, which is the Supreme Court case that legalized gay marriage. Understanding the context of this and how deep it goes is a lot bigger than just winning debate about a political argument. So much deeper because it starts going into the character and the plans and purposes of who God is. So in Genesis chapter 1, look at me in verses 27 and 28. So God created who? In His own image. In the image of God created He, Him. Male and what? Created He, them. I mean, that in and of itself, and the way I even just kind of worded that, again can kind of come across as a smack in the face. So maybe you should be a little more gracious with that. But here's the real key that I wanted to get to. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Jump on over to chapter 2. So he didn't just create Adam and Eve just so they could have fun. No, he gave them a specific mission. You could even say he gave them a co-mission. Going somewhere with that one. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet a helpmeet, a helper to meet the parameters of the mission that God gave them in verse 27. Now, obviously, these events kind of overlap each other from what we're going to read here to going back into chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. These kind of fit in place right then and there. I think that's kind of obvious, but just wanted to say that. So verse 20, or 19, And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Adam gave the names of all the cattle, etc. We know the story, but at the end of verse 20, he says he was not found in helpmeet for him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. You know, oftentimes whenever uh, it's said in the Bible that someone goes to sleep, it is a picture, and in a sense, it's talking about the body has died. It's not talking about soul sleep because there's a lot of cults that get into that whole thing where that they say that when you die, your soul just kind of goes to sleep also and that there's no punishment in the afterlife. That's not true. But he's talking about sleep is kind of likened unto death. And so Adam fell asleep and he slept and he took one of his ribs. Anybody tell me where was the last place that Christ was punctured? On his side after he had went to sleep. And unclosed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, verse 22, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his what? Wife. And they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked and the man and his wife and were not ashamed. And point one on your outline. God created man and woman to fulfill the purpose of being fruitful, multiplying, and replenishing the earth. Now that word replenishing, it can mean to fill. But with that word re there, that prefix re there, it could also mean to fill again. Hmm. That'd be a good question to throw in the box. To replenish the earth both physically and spiritually. And why do I say that spiritually? Because that's exactly what you and I are called to do and commissioned to do in Matthew 28, 18-20. Christ, after His resurrection, He says, All power is given unto me both in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, His disciples, His followers, 
and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's called making disciples. That's called making a follower. That's called having fruit and multiplying. And as you study the book of Acts, the disciples, they did that. They multiplied. They didn't just add to the church. The Bible says in Acts, they multiplied and they filled up the church, the bride of Christ, it's called in Ephesians chapter 5. You see this commission, it's given to Adam and Eve physically, but even with that physically, it is still a spiritual commission because Adam and Eve were supposed to raise up their own children, their own fruit, to follow in the way that they should go, to train up a child in the way that he shall go. And so a child is nothing different than a disciple. Those of you in here that are involved in discipleship, whether you're discipling somebody else or you're the one being discipled, it's really no different than parenting. Somebody else who's more mature in the faith takes you along and shows you the ins and the outs. Hey, make sure you watch out for that. Hey, you know what? It'd be good for you to follow this path. And you're taking them through and helping them to mature so that they can be successful when they grow up. Parenting and discipleship go hand in hand. It's our job spiritually to do this. It's the exact same plan that God gave Adam and Eve. And that's why, in number two, for that reason, God defines marriage as a man, husband, and a woman, wife. <coughs> we just saw in verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Did you know that in Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 31, the passage that talks about a husband's responsibilities and a wife's responsibilities, that same verse throws, gets thrown out there. It's the exact same thing that a husband and wife are supposed to do. But what does he end in chapter 5 with? This is a great mystery, Paul says. But I speak in relation to Christ and the church. The same commission that is to be given that was given to Adam and Eve physically and spiritually is given to us spiritually as the bride of Christ to make disciples all over the place because we are his bride and he is our husband. Now point 3 the biblical pattern that we just established demonstrates that any union any union, you might want to underline, double underline, triple underline, any union outside of that. You know what you just so happen to find in the Bible? Death and destruction. Genesis chapter 6, which we're going to be getting into in just a few short weeks about the sons of God, angelic beings coming down and mating and having sexual intercourse with the daughters of men. And it created a mighty men, a mighty class of giants. And there were giants in those days before the flood and after the flood, Genesis 6 come, or comes to say. And you know what God decided? Hmm, I gotta wipe this place out. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You go on even to chapter 19. What's going on in Genesis 19? Abraham has a relative who lives in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And who's that relative? Lot. More on that in a second. Well, towards the end of tonight. Judges 19, you'd see. This is actually talking about any kind of sexual union between a man and a man, but instead it was a concubine. And guess what? Death and destruction came from that. Oh, and I went ahead and threw this up here. 1 Corinthians 6.13 He's speaking to a church, mind you. A body of believers, the bride of Christ, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. And the very next word out of his mouth, now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You can read the rest of chapter 6, and you know what he'll tell you? Nothing will kill your spiritual walk faster than playing around with this type of fire here. Nothing. Death and destruction. 
Now, with that stage set, let's turn over to Leviticus 18. This is a passage that a lot of people on the left, politically, a lot of skeptics, a lot of critics will actually go to this and say, yo, you're just pulling this verse out of Leviticus, <coughs> the fire and brimstone part of the Bible, they say, the part that is of the Old Testament. Well, in the particular case of the question that was asked tonight, we got two things that were leveled against this. Number one, hey, it's in the Old Testament. What, you got nothing in the New Testament about this? After all, Christ is all about love, and He's all about forgiveness. More on that in a second. And they also throw out, well, this is mistranslated. We're in Leviticus 18. Let's go ahead and read verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. <laughs> We don't even really have to spend much time on the first point on there, but look at the second bullet point. Leviticus 18.22 is mistranslated. My first question in light of that, again, hopefully you've already established the context. You've already established, hey, here's the reason why I believe what I believe, and it has to do with what God's plan was for our lives, the universe, and the rest of the planet. And hopefully you've taken the time to show them those verses before diving into this. But the first question I would have to ask if someone is throwing that out there would be, uh, how do you know exactly that this is mistranslated? Can you show me? Because you know what? I have staked my entire life and eternity on the very words that are found in this book. You see, I believe that this is the written word of God, the mind of Christ, based upon the living word of God. I staked my entire eternity upon every single word because I believe every single word of God is pure in Proverbs 30, verse 5. Can you please tell me how you have found that this is an error and that it's mistranslated? Because if so, let's go ahead and write to the New York Times. Let's go ahead and write to USA Today and Time Magazine. And let's go ahead and say the Bible's been proven false. It's been mistranslated. Chances are, They've more than likely said that just because, well, it doesn't fit with the progressive mindset. It doesn't fit with the, how many churches today seem to be forsaking this and really not really doing their due diligence of rightly dividing the word of truth and finding the other passages that do line up with this outside of the Old Testament. But, I mean, it makes it very clear. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. And I find it very interesting that it says mankind there instead of man. Because really when you think about the word mankind, it means men. It does. Same thing with womankind. But you know what I find fascinating? Break down the word mankind. It's a compound word. It means kind of man. A kind of male. And I think it's in there probably because of something that is becoming more and more of a growing thing in politics today, more and more growing thing in this decrepit, debaucherous civilization we live in now. Have you heard of a term thrown around called minor attracted persons? Yes. They call them maps now, but you're absolutely right, Sam. The actual word for it is pedophile and pervert where people can be attracted to any kind of man, no matter what age they are. That's why I personally think that it says specifically mankind and not man there. Because it's an abomination. Same with womankind. And then, just for good measure, look what he throws in in verse 23. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down there too. It is confusion. You know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I believe it's verse 33. When it comes to the matter of confusion, God's not the author thereof. If he's not the author of confusion, that only leaves one left. Satanic. And not to mention, I, I'm even going to throw this one out here for you. Now, this is a topic for another day, and I'm not going to get into this, but, you know, we hold to the King James Bible as being the preserved Word of God here. But just for kicks and giggles, I don't know if this is going to show up or not. It does. You guys probably still can't see it, and I can't zoom in on it. 
Don't worry, I'll go ahead and read it for those of you in the back. Here's how other Bible translations that, again, we would go on and say that they use manuscripts that are different and even come from a corrupt place, and we've even gone through our time in church history looking at this to prove it and show it, and I've studied it for years of my life. The CSB says, You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It's detestable. The New King James, which again is not a revision of the King James, comes from different manuscripts, says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. The NIV do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. It's detestable. Uh, the reign of Valera 60. No te echeres con varón como con mujer. Un abomination. Could it be any clearer? New Living Translation. Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman, it's a detestable sin. ESV, you should not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Again, we would not agree with the, where the manuscripts come from for most of these Bibles. But I mean, to that point of somebody saying, well, it was mistranslated, hey, even in those other manuscripts, they all got it right on there. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Just saying. Do we need to say anything else about the... Uh, oh. Adam oh, no. Eve, not Adam and Steve. Well, I was going to say about the mistranslation part. <laughs> but anywho. All right. Uh, you guys, are you on page two? The next bullet point, is there anything else left on your page? Because mine, I think, is different from your guys's. All right, top of the next page. <coughs> the command is in Leviticus 18.22 is only found in the Old Testament. Oh, really? Point number one, uh, Jesus is your blank. The typical Sunday school answer. What'd you learn today? Jesus. Matthew 19.4-6. And he answered and said to them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and what? And said, for this cause, showing up again, shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his what? And they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together. God, because he's in charge of this whole thing. He's the architect of it all. Let no man put asunder. You can go into a whole other realm with that about you know, divorce and everything. But yeah. That's what Christ had to say. Quoting back to Genesis, uh, New Testament, and not to mention uh, the Lord. It's Jesus. Okay. How about the guy who wrote a vast majority of the New Testament? Flip on over to Romans chapter 1. This should be review for you guys. And to be quite honest, it's one of the more damaging passages that just obliterates the argument. But again... That's not what we're about. Obliterating arguments. We're trying to win them to Christ. Don't, don't mistake my passion for, uh, for trying to get you guys to load up your gun and just go blazing with your Bible. It was a gun metaphor for winning an argument. I feel like I need to clarify that in this day and age because some of you will actually take a gun in this argument. All right. Romans chapter 1. Look with me in verse 22. Again, somebody tell me, what's the context of chapter 1? Rome. It is Rome. Good job. All the who are under sin? All the Gentiles are under sin. You know, we got a podcast where you can go back and listen to all these. Help you with. Never mind. All right, we're digressing. How you guys doing tonight? Is it warm in here? Yeah. You guys learning something? Okay, good. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They reject the Creator. They reject that there is an authority. They reject the fact that they're going to stand before God one day. Because Hebrews 9.27 says that uh, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the what? Judgment. I need to refer you back to our winter camp message. Man doesn't like the idea that he's going to stand before God one day and be judged. And he's going to found himself wanting. And so what do they do? They had to create a lie in order to get themselves to feel good about their sin, to make God as though he doesn't exist anymore. 
And so what does God do? Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a what? And worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Holy smokes, we can go into a whole whirlwind on that one. They actually changed the natural use, maybe through surgery. Verse 27, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, the natural use, the outline that we just presented in the context, what did they do? Burned in their lust one toward another. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, look what he says next. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meat. And boy, did they. Let me just say on that note, if you think that you can just sin with whatever you want and get away with it, you got another thing coming. That's literally the application of that verse there. Recompense, to, to compensate again, to pay back is what that word means. People want to do that and go against God and what He has set up in His word. Payback is coming. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. That's Paul. That's one of the more damaging passages, but you know what? He goes on. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. And on that note, you know, again, I'm sure many of you guys have come across this, but, you know, if they start coming at you uh, the whole idea of, so you think that homosexuals are going to hell, um, no different than a heterosexual fornicator. Sin is sin. It's not like we're cherry-picking you guys and just jumping on the bandwagon and picking on you. No. Any of these idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with, what's that word? Exactly as Leviticus 18.22 puts it. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. We don't have the time to go into it. I've gone into it before, but as I've stated before, when he's talking about this whole inherit the kingdom of God thing, he's not talking about you. you if you do these things, you're not saved. Whenever you look and just trace that word inherit or inheritance through the Bible, specifically the New Testament, inheritance is an earned reward that you get after salvation. What he's saying here is any Christian who commits these things, and mind you, read 1 Corinthians, there were people all over the place committing these things, they're going to lose their inheritance. Again, think of Esau. Think of Lot. Think of uh, Luke 19, the parable of occupy till I come, that unjust steward who hid his talent and did nothing with it. He lost his inheritance, still went to heaven, but lost his inheritance. And you can cross-reference this with Galatians chapter 5 when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Anybody who commits those things, they also lose their inheritance. Anytime inheritance and inheritance found in the Word of God, it's talking to Christians and the things that they do in order to earn their inheritance after salvation. I said there wasn't time for that, but I went to it anyways. 1 Timothy 1.10. Again, Paul talking, for whoremongers and for them which defile themselves with... What's that word? Again, exactly as it appears in Luke, or Leviticus 18.22. It's funny, I never saw that word mankind was used there in both of those verses until we did this study. I think that's the reason also why God used that same word and preserved it in His word. For men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, He's saying the reason for the law, it's not for the righteous. The reason for the Ten Commandments, as you guys well know from winter camp, is not for the righteous. No, it's to convict all of these people for the sins that they're in, and it goes contrary to sound doctrine. It's not proper biblical teaching. That's Paul. 
That's just the three ones I could think of. How about Peter? He also wrote books in the New Testament. You can check out that passage later. The same thing with John when he talks about all fornicators, hetero or homosexual, they're going to have their part in the lake of fire if they don't receive the love of the truth in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I almost feel like we need to go to that passage because it's come up so many times tonight. And when we're talking about a situation that is as seemingly, seemingly brutal and unforgiving and harsh as it is, 2 Thessalonians 2 makes it very clear that no, 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 no. Christ has been more than gracious. He has been more than loving to extend His offer of what He did on the cross as payment for their sins. And again and again, mankind has rejected because man loves his sin. If you refuse truth, you receive a lie. If you refuse the truth of the Word of God, the recompense is you'll believe a lie. Which is what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes on the scene, also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They're going to be deceived because they are rejecting God's gracious offer for all to come and to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Elsewhere, you can read Hebrews. I should have thrown Hebrews under Paul. That's also another good question to throw in the box. Who is the author of Hebrews? Kind of just gave it away, but if you put it in the box, I'll prove it to you. <laughs> and also Jude. All right. Does that answer the question? I try to leave no stone unturned. Because I have a feeling that through the course of this class, not only do I want you guys to get something out of the Bible where it just causes you to be like, wow, what a book. But I also have a feeling, just knowing how God works and operates, that you'll probably come up and uh, have these questions uh, in through interactions with people at school, probably tomorrow, probably going to happen. Be ready. All right. Number three. Somehow I'm going to do this in eight minutes. Holy smokes. Oh, crap. I'm timing you now. No. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter one. This is actually a great question to end on because this kind of goes along with what we're going to touch on in the weeks to come. Question three. Is a cherub or a cherubim an angel? So let's look at chapter... Well, just for starters, I mean, I have Genesis 3... On the, on the study sheet there, you guys remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God kicked them out of the garden. And what did he do after that? You guys remember? The very first mention of the word cherubim shows up there. When God puts cherubim to guard the Garden of Eden with flaming swords saying, best get walking because you ain't allowed back in here anymore. Rough paraphrase. They didn't actually say that. <laughs> Exodus 25 is where God is giving Moses specific instructions on how to build the ark, the ark of the, or the, the mercy seat, rather, where two cherubim sit, and their, their wings of these cherubim were supposed to go inwards. And God specifically said in Exodus that right there on the mercy seat, that is where my presence is going to be. So when you come and you meet with me, and again, in the Old Testament, it was just the priests. When you come and meet with me, that's where my presence, my spirit is going to be. But Ezekiel chapter 1 is very interesting because we finally get a more descriptive illustration of what a cherub or cherubim is. Look with me in verse 4. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of how many? Living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. In other words, uh, a head, hands, feet, likeness. It was more of a body. You could trace that word likeness throughout, and that's what you'll find. They had a body or an appearance, a likeness as of a man. But they're not entirely a man. You'll see that here in a second. And every one had four faces. 
So there's four beings, and each of these beings had four faces, and every one had how many wings? Four wings. Jump over to verse 10. As for their likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, and the face of a lion, and on the right side, and they, they four had the face of an ox on the left side, and they four also had the face of an eagle. So all four of these beings had four faces, and these are the four things. A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Can you imagine if you, if you caught a glimpse of one of these things? Is it any wonder why so many people just drop dead at the sight of these kind of beasts? Look at verse 14. Or no, sorry, chapter 10. Flip on over there. So Ezekiel catches a vision of them. In chapter 10, verse 9, he gives us a little bit more of a description of these beings. Look at verse 9. And I, when I looked, behold, the four wheels by the... What's that word? Cherubims. Cherubims. One wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by another cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was as the color of a barrel stone. And as for their appearances, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of them. Uh, where do I want to go? Verse 14, sorry. And every one had how many faces? The first face was the face of a cherub. Interesting. As you're going to see here in this description, that's the one that's missing for an ox. Interesting. I don't have an answer for that. Just making that known. But it is interesting. He says, hey, you want to know what a cherub looks like? It looks like an ox. And the second face was a face of a man. And the third face was a face of a lion. And the fourth face was a face of an eagle. And the cherubims were lifted up. This is the living creature which I saw by the river of Chabar. I don't know if I read that or not in chapter 1. I thought it was verse 5. Where he says, I was in the river of Chabar. No, but that's verse 3. Just in case I wanted to prove these same creatures he saw in chapter 1, the same exact ones. He's by the river of Chabar. These are the ones he saw, he says. So you get the picture. You have these four creatures. They have four wings, and each of them have four different faces. One of a... What's the first one? A man. A... Ox, a lion. eagle, and a lion. Sure, I'll take whatever order we can get for sake of time. No, I'm not. So, hold your place here in Ezekiel and go over to Revelation chapter 4. Hold your place in Ezekiel because we're coming back to it. These will be the last two places we look. Like that helps. Like that means it's going to speed up. <laughs> oh, I give you guys such false hope. Shut up, Andy. All right. <laughs> Revelation chapter 4, look at verse 6. Now here we have John in heaven. Shortly after the rapture, because chapter 2 and 3 are church history, and in verse 1... You hear, you see heaven open up and you hear, come up hither. John goes up. He's a picture of the church. Hmm. The word church is not mentioned any time after that until chapter 19 when the church comes back, the second coming with Christ. So here we are, John, up in heaven. And he also is before the throne of God. Look at verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. We talked about that before. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were what? Four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a... And the second beast was like a... Which is a young ox. And the third beast had a face of a... And the fourth beast was like a... And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. Interesting. And they were full of eyes within. So you catch it? They have eyes before, they have eyes behind, and they have eyes within. And they were full of eyes, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. It's almost as though the eyes before them is to come. The eyes within them, which is, and the eyes behind them, which was. 
They're all seeing. They see everything. They've seen everything that God has done, and they know what God is going to do. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down. So you flip back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Now if you want to make notes, or actually flip over to chapter 28 of Ezekiel. If you want to make notes, do you guys catch how there's a couple of differences here in the beasts of chapter 10 of Ezekiel and the beasts of Revelation chapter 4? Revelation 4, they had six wings, but they only had one face per animal. Whereas in Ezekiel chapters 1 and chapter 10, they had four wings and they had four different faces for each beast. Now, when it comes to Ezekiel 1, if you guys were to actually read the rest of that chapter for the context's sake, the wheels that they were on, it's because these four beasts, as we saw in Revelation 4, they are surrounding the throne of God, and the wheels of Ezekiel chapter 1 are them transporting the throne of God to the earth at the second coming. Now, why that's significant is because in Revelation chapter 4, we are not at the second coming. Revelation 4 takes place shortly after the rapture of the church during the tribulation period. So the reason why they're different is because of the fact that it's a different time, a different setting, and they have a different purpose in chapter 1 of Ezekiel than they do Revelation chapter 4. But when you look at the description by comparing spiritual things with spiritual, comparing scripture with scripture, you can tell that these are cherubim. And you see that there's four of them. But did you know that there wasn't always four of them? There was a fifth one. Ezekiel 28, you're going to see that there's a man by the name of the king of Tyre. And what's unique about this, that even though there was a king of Tyre, as you're reading, God starts describing not really an ordinary man. It's an abnormal man. He starts giving descriptions about the power behind that king of Tyre, as you'll soon see. Look at verse 14. Actually, look at verse 13. Talking about the king of Tyre, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Hmm. So this, this fifth being, he was in Eden, the garden of God. Talks about all these precious stones that he's made out of and all these musical instruments of tabrets and pipes prepared inside of him. This is no ordinary man. And then you get to verse 14. Thou art the anointed, what? That covereth. You see, the four beasts, the four cherubs that we saw earlier in the book and in Revelation 4, they're sitting around and in the midst of the throne. This guy was the cherub that covered. He was the one that was above the other four. I have set thee so, God says that, verse 14, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. You cross-reference Ezekiel 28 with Isaiah 14, talking about the fall of Lucifer, and you find out just who the king of Tyre, or who God is really talking about, the king of Tyre actually is. Lucifer was the fifth cherub amongst these four other beasts that are in the throne of God, or he was in the throne of God until sin was found in him, when he said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend. I will elevate my throne above his throne. And Christ himself says later in the book of Luke, I saw, I beheld Satan fall as lightning to the ground. Hmm. You see, second bullet point, each cherubim represents the various classes of created creatures. We saw the lion. That represents the wild beast class. And for those of you who've been here before, we talk about how all four of these beasts represent the four Gospels and how each author of the Gospel writes concerning Christ. Matthew portrays, uh, portrays his Gospel as Christ as the king 
king of the Jews. In fact, that's even what the wise men said in Matthew's gospel. Where is the king of the Jews? The lion from the tribe of Judah. And a calf. That represents the domesticated beast class. Mark's gospel reveals Christ as the servant of the Lord, giving his life first in service and then in sacrifice. It's the shortest gospel because it gets right to the point. And it's in Mark's gospel where you even see that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to, that's the service part, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the sacrifice part. Better represented than a calf, an ox. And man, number three, you see the mankind class. That's Luke's gospel. Luke portrays Christ as the Son of Man, even tracing His lineage back to the first man. And it talks about His humanness. And lastly, the eagle. The eagle represents the king of the winged beast class. And go figure, John's Gospel portrays Christ as God coming down from the heavens and made flesh. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. These four creatures represent the four different Gospels. And the reason why they have... And guys, if there's a devotional application tonight, it's this. So don't miss it. The reason why these four creatures have <laughs> such, so much of a likeness to Him in relation to how it portrays Him in the Gospels. The reason why these creatures have so much of a likeness to Christ is because they are much with Christ. These four creatures, anytime you see them, they are covering and surrounding the throne of God. And day and night, they cease not to give Him the worship that He deserves. And it's true for us. The more that you and I are with Him in His presence the more you will represent His likeness. The more you will be like Him. 2 Corinthians says that we are changed from glory to glory when we spend time with Him. We are more conformed to the image of His dear Son in Romans chapter 8 as we spend time with Him, as we walk with Him. The only way we can spend more time in His presence is through Spending time in His presence and then communicating with Him and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Don't miss that. It's not about doing devotions. It's about being with the King. And the last one, you don't see this because there's no fifth gospel, is the serpent. He represents the amphibian reptile class. Did you notice that's the only kingdom that's really missing? How does he show up in Genesis 3.1? As a... Revelation 22, he's a dragon. Leviticus, or Job 41, he is the Leviathan. Just read the description of him there. Five cherubim appear in the Bible, but after the fall of Lucifer, only four appear as guardians of the throne. These beasts represent the greatness, beauty, and strength of creation, glorifying and praising God. Check out Psalm 103 later and Revelation 4.8. We already read that. Now the answer. Angels, however, and I'll end here. Sorry, but I have to get this out. And we started a little late anyway, so there. The point of this class is not just to give you guys the gotcha answers so that you have all the answers to your friends and so that you can one-up them. That's not the point. The point of this class is to cause you guys to see, again, wow, what a book. It truly does have all the answers that we need. But also, it should cause us to take a more earnest heed to what is said. It should cause us to go only based upon what the Bible says. Case in point. What scripture passage have you ever seen where an angel has wings? 
Did you know that any time an angel shows up in the Bible, he's described as a man with no mention of wings whatsoever. So where did we get that from? Throughout all of time, you have art, you have paintings, you have all of these depictions that say an angel has wings. Nowhere in the Bible does it show that. These beings do. These beings, these creatures, these creatures are never called angels. And I added Revelation chapter 5, 11 to your notes. You guys have that, right? I want to make sure that got printed at the end there. I mentioned Genesis 19. You could see the men that show up in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were men. That's what the people of Sodom thought they were. And you can check it out, Revelation 22. But listen to Revelation 5.11, and we'll end here. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts. In Revelation 5.11, John differentiates between the angels and these cherubim. These are not angels. They are angelic in the sense that they're in the heavenlies where we talk about angels. But the answer is they're not. I could have just given you this simple short answer and we got out of here earlier, but these are things where this sort of a, hmm, this book becomes this book. And it should cause you to go, wow, how much of this book do I not know? What else is in here? Amen?